My story starts with, of all things, stinging nettles. It was a beautiful spring morning, and I had decided that I was going to go and make spanakopita for dinner. My recipe called for wild stinging nettles, and I knew where to find them right in my backyard. I have a creek behind my house, so I crossed over it and ducked through a deer trail. I had no idea that that simple little excursion was going to change the rest of my life. Sorry, have I even introduced myself? My name is Sarah Cormode, and I'm the host of the CanLime podcast, Looking at Lime. Over the course of this podcast, we are going to speak to doctors, entomologists, geneticists, and other experts, and we're going to get to the bottom of Lyme disease and its impact on human health. Thanks for coming along. So let's jump ahead. It's 10 days later, and I now am having such a hard time with any kind of bright light I can hear every sound. I'm so sensitive to sound, and I have developed the worst headaches. Now, let me be clear. I had never had headaches before in my life. I was 41 years old. I was fit as a fiddle, paddler, a skier, a mountain biker, and all of a sudden, I could hardly get out of bed. I couldn't leave my house, and I was in so much pain every single day. And at work, I had to wear a hat and sunglasses, and honestly, I felt like a bit of a dork. And then one day, my boss said, Sarah, you really need to go to the hospital. And that started my journey with Lyme disease and the medical system and meeting an awful lot of specialists. My story is so typical, and Dr. Liz Zubek sees it all the time. Dr. Zubek is a family physician who specializes in treating Lyme disease and she lives in Maple Ridge. Hello, Dr. Zubek, and thank you so much for joining us on our podcast today. Hi, Sarah. Thanks. How did you get involved in treating patients with Lyme disease? Well, I had a small segment of patients who had multiple symptoms across so many different uh, areas, neurological, gastrointestinal, musculoskeletal, And there was such similarity between them, and all of them we hadn't found any uniting diagnosis. And then when I learned about extra testing that could be done for Lyme disease and explored that in one patient, I did find that there was Lyme disease, and I expanded that testing to the other patients and actually did find Lyme in a number of them. So that quite intrigued me into pursuing this in more depth. Wow, they really just came to you. They found you. I think every family doctor has patients with this multitude of systemic symptoms that they don't know what to do with. And many um, family doctors, like myself then, believed that our testing was more accurate than it was. So in all these people, we've done the Canadian test for Lyme disease. It's been negative, and we unfortunately thought that it was ruled out. So do you have a diagnostic tool that you prefer to use now? Well, I always start with the Canadian testing because if that is positive, it's a very clear indication that there's Lyme disease. However, if the person has a presentation that is quite typical of Lyme, and if we haven't found another cause, then I do like to do additional testing. 
one thing I like to do is an Ellie spot test or an eye spot test, which looks at a different type of immunity. Um, the current Canadian tests deal with antibodies, whereas this testing has to do with our T cells and if they're turned on to fight Lyme disease. So sometimes people will be positive in one but not the other. Why is Lyme disease challenging to diagnose? Well, it's challenging to diagnose because our testing is not optimal and the presentation can be so diverse. Some people will present with um, musculoskeletal pain. Other people might present with um, cognitive issues. Some people will present with cardiac issues. So there's such a diversity of presentation that it's hard to immediately settle on Lyme as a unifying diagnosis. And have you noticed an increase in the number of cases of Lyme disease and co-infections in British Columbia? I believe we're recognizing it much more often. I can't say if there's an actual increase in numbers or an increase in recognition. So in my case, it took me a long time to get an accurate diagnosis. Is that typical for your patients also? Absolutely. Because the diagnosis is not easy unless you're positive by the Canadian testing. But even then, it takes the physician thinking of Lyme to order the test. There's multiple different labs. There's both private labs and public labs. And each lab may, may have some differences in testing. I will usually use a German lab myself. Can we speak in general about some of the treatments? Sure. Basically, Lyme disease is difficult to treat because it takes on different morphologies, meaning that the bacteria can present as um, typically this little coiled up spiral, which we call a spirochete. But then it can also form this L body. And, um, and then it can also have a more dormant form, which is this, this L form rolled up on itself, like a little ball. And so when we're trying to treat it, there are different antibiotics that work best with the different forms it takes. So often you have to do a combination of two or three different medications if it's a case of chronic Lyme disease. And what kind of training do doctors receive in Canada regarding Lyme disease and tick-borne illnesses? Well, I see a lot of medical students through my practice, and they're in fourth-year medical school, so they finish their, their studies, and most of them know very little about Lyme disease. They may have had one lecture that glossed over it briefly. I'm hoping that more education will come out, but to date, it's pretty limited. Why do you think that is? I really can't answer why that is. I mean, in years past, we didn't talk a lot about multiple sclerosis or um, HIV. And so I think that in this case, when it's so diverse and we don't have really good research on treatment options and on testing options, it's hard to teach something that is still so unknown. Do you see some improvements in medical practices here? I see a lot more awareness. I think there's a lot more physicians who are willing to do trials of treatment when Lyme disease is on the list of possibilities, that they're more open to exploring that as a possible diagnosis to explain the patient's uh, multitude of symptoms. Do you think Lyme disease is still underdiagnosed? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, undi it's underdiagnosed across Canada, also across the U.S., and um, I think some other parts of the world are more attuned to it. 
but certainly here there was a, a great study by uh, Bette Lloyd and Ralph Hawkins just showing how dramatically underdetected it is on the East Coast, and I think that extends across Canada. Yeah, I hope we get to get them on the podcast in the future. <laughs> yes. Uh, so why do patients suffer so differently, patient to patient? Well, the thing is, Lyme can infect any organ of our body. So, you know, one person might have more neurological manifestations. They might have, you know, problems with their memory and their thinking. Another person, it might be more predominantly in the joints. Another person, it might um, affect their heart most severely. So each one of them can look very different with the same underlying infection. How can physicians get more training to more training in Lyme disease? I certainly feel that the ILADS, the International Lyme and Associated Diseases um, Group, gives quite good introductory courses on Lyme disease, and then they also have an educational foundation if somebody wanted to delve deeper into it, you can actually spend a week with a mentor, and one of these mentors would have seen you know, thousands and thousands of cases of Lyme disease, so that experience is just invaluable. Yeah, that sounds like a really great way to learn in somebody else's practice and get to examine other patients. Yes, I, I found that that just increased my knowledge and my confidence so much in going to that. Um, but the first step would be just taking the, the education program. You know, in one day, it gives you such a good overview of Lyme disease and co-infections that it gives you a really good um, starting point for just your whole diagnostic workup and treatment. That's great. And people can find more information on the CanLyme website because we do have grants available for people to, to do that training. Wonderful. And what have you learned as a physician about diagnosing and treating Lyme disease? Um, I've learned that each person has to be approached as an individual. We call it an N of one treatment trial, meaning that there is one person and you're comparing them to, them to themselves. You know, most other diseases, we can take a thousand people and give them the exact same treatment and analyze the outcome because their disease is fairly similar across the board. Whereas with Lyme disease, how do you do a treatment trial when one person has more neurological effects, one has more cardiac effects, one has more um, musculoskeletal effects? How do, you, how do you compare them all? So you really have to take the one person, analyze their set of symptoms, and monitor it month by month to see how it's changing. And adapt your protocols and make that informed decision. Am I going to continue to treat? Am I going to tweak the protocol a bit? Do we feel we're done here? And just analyze that every month. My symptoms flare and go dormant over the years. Have you noticed that with your patients as well? Oh, absolutely. Because it's not just a matter of fighting the infection. It, it's a matter of boosting the immune system. And when we're particularly stressed, that affects our immune system. So I have seen people who have had very mild cases of Lyme disease or whose Lyme disease has gone into remission and then they will have something like a car accident or a major life stress in their family and all of a sudden their symptoms flare again, probably because their immune system um, is depressed and so then the Lyme is able to gain a bit more ground in the body. 
And what is the biggest barrier to getting a diagnosis in Canada? Well, I think the first barrier is thinking of it as a possibility. Um, We learned back in medical school that absolutely any symptom that a person walks in with puts syphilis on the differential. That's just, you know, that's an automatic, you know, always consider syphilis. Whereas Lyme, I think, is more prevalent than syphilis, and it actually acts, it's a very similar bacteria to syphilis, but it's got a much grander, uh, much grander uh, structure. And and so anything that syphilis can do, Lyme can do better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so fascinating because they're both spirochetes. Yeah, exactly. And um, and so we have to to always be suspicious of it in order to pick it up in our patients. And do you have advice for anyone who suspects that they might have Lyme disease? Um, it depends if we're talking about acute Lyme or chronic Lyme. Um, for acute Lyme, there is now a really good toolkit that was put out by the Center for Effective Practice and with the College of Family Physicians of Canada. And that toolkit does go through a lot of the options if you've recently been bit by a tick or you've got um, an initial erythema migraine skin reaction and how to how to proceed with that. The problem is, what do you do when somebody has a more chronic picture? They've been suffering for years, and um, there's not a lot of good resources out there. There is one paper that was uh, presented by ILADS, and it's, it's by Cameron Johnson and Maloney. So there is a really good resource, which is um, Evidence Assessments and Guideline Recommendations in Lyme Disease, the Clinical Management of Known Tick Bites, Erythema Migraines, Rashes, and Persistent Disease. And these are 2014 guidelines that take into account the current research alongside clinical expertise. And the important thing with these guidelines is they explore the role of patient preference in treatment. So um, two people who have a similar presentation, one of them may want to treat very aggressively and one of them may want to err on the side of not treating. And so we have to take into account what our patient wants to do. And so I take everybody individually and, you know, we discuss doing a treatment trial, reassessing in a month, and then deciding do we want to continue further or not. Yes, because this bacteria behaves differently in everybody, doesn't it? Well, it's all the same bacteria, the Borrelia burgdorferi, but it does take um, different morphologies or, or physical forms. And that is a key factor in treatment when somebody has chronic Lyme disease because there's a spirochete form, which is what we all think of with Lyme disease, this little corkscrew. And that has a cell wall, and anything with a cell wall, we can treat with something like amoxicillin or, or cephalosporin antibiotics. But the, the Lyme is very smart, and it can change forms into an intracellular L body. And so because the antibiotics like amoxicillin destroy cell walls, all of a sudden the bacteria can, go, can shed its cell wall and go inside your own cells. So then you need a different type of antibiotic to get it there, which might be along your tetracycline line or in the erythromycin line. 
But then, just like Superman in a phone booth, the uh, the line can get really tricky, and that L form can curl up on itself like a little ball of wool and just sort of sit dormant. And it sits in sort of this slime-like film. It's called a biofilm. And it just sits there. But it can waken at any time, right? It's a sleeping dog. And that very persistent form, um, our general antibiotics will not get it there. So then you have to use some specialized medications. So when I'm treating somebody with chronic Lyme, I'm usually needing to use three different antibiotics at the same time or pulsed to make sure that the bacteria isn't just changing its form to evade my attack. That's great. Thank you so much for your time and your expertise, Dr. Zubek. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much, Dr. Zubek, for sharing your experience with us. And that wraps up the inaugural podcast of Looking at Lyme. On our next podcast, things might get a little bit creepy because we're going to meet a blood-sucking arachnid. See you on the next podcast and stay safe in the outdoors.